Loving Father, thanks that we can gather this morning and uh, we pray that by your spirit you'd speak to our hearts and our minds, that you'd open up the truth of your word to us and apply it, this truth to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, please keep your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 18. Uh, this is uh, the last talk in our series uh, that we've called Unpacking Forgiveness. Uh, I want you, as we begin this morning, to consider two related questions. Uh, you can see them on the outline, I think, uh, that you received on the way in. Two related questions. What should be said to a person who says, I just cannot forgive? Or what should be said to a person who says, I will not forgive? Um, on the one hand, there are two questions that are quite different. One might be a matter of the will, and the other might be a matter of ability. But both are alike as they probe how far forgiveness should go. Either way, Jesus is teaching that people who are unable or unwilling to forgive, well, they should be warned in the most serious way possible. So the question this morning, are there limits to forgiveness? Which brings us to verse 21 of chapter 18. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister, my fellow believer who sins against me up to seven times? And... Before we throw rocks at Peter, I want to, he should be commended. This is a great question because it indicates a willingness to forgive. And that is a thoroughly good thing. So he gets the thumbs up. And asking how many times, well, it's not terrible. Uh, it's certainly if you follow, followed our study from last week. It's actually logical. All that binding and loosing talk from last week certainly might imply that there are boundaries and limits. As we live in light of the gospel, as we seek to live for Christ, of course there are things that are okay and things that are not okay. We know repentance is a thing, accountability, church unity and purity, that's a thing. We also know the last judgment is a thing. So doesn't it follow then that there might be limits to forgiveness as well? That's really Peter's question. And Jesus has answered, well, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. If you're keeping a tally of how many times you have forgiven your husband or wife, you probably need, or your children for that matter, uh, you probably need to stop. But why? Why does Jesus expect our willingness to forgive to be unending? Well, look at the parable. It unfolds like a drama with three acts. And we have to cast only three roles, really. First in the scene is the rich king. Enter the king. Uh, there is a master who is his sidekick and representative, but he really just speaks for the king anyway. And the king is both generous and just. So we've got a king. Second, we need, who do we need now? We need 
servant number one, don't we? Who appears to be a winner in the story, but we know at the end of the story he's a big loser. Don't follow him. And then the third character is, well, he's just ordinary and average, hard-working fellow that's had some bad breaks. Let's call him Joe Average. And so in Act 1 of this parable, Servant 1 owes a wealthy king a huge amount of money. And it is exorbitantly large, this debt. One commentator says it would have been the equivalent of 193,000 years wages. That's what he reckoned. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money, isn't it? That's more like a national debt than an individual's debt, isn't it? And it's really inconceivable how great this debt is. I think that's the point. It is such a large amount, no one could pay this back. Not ever. And so the king summons a servant who owes him money, verse 24. He cannot pay, so he, his family, all that he has is to be sold. That's verse 25. And what is his only resource at this point? What is the only option for servant number one? His only option, isn't it, is to plea for mercy. That's all he's got. And so, verse 26. Can you picture the scene? At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Pay back everything? How do you do that? Oh, I do not know. But what was the response? Verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Quite literally, the master's heart goes out to him. Now, don't move past this too quickly. Remember, the servant asked for patience. And he asked for time, time to pay back the debt in verse 26. That's what he asked for. And what does he get in return? He gets a debt forgiven and not jail, but freedom. This is substantially more than he actually asked for. This is a great outcome for he and his family this is complete forgiveness and grace, which is so generous, it's somewhat outrageous. This is crazy, crazy generosity. I hope we see that. Which brings us to some important gospel truths that we can observe already. And the first is our debt before God is like this bloke's. It is deep, it is significant. Our debt before God is beyond any human calculation. We are spiritually bankrupt, all of us, and we cannot pay it back. We do not have the means. Such is our poverty. All we can do is cry out for mercy at the knees, on our knees to the king. But we know, don't we, that God in his love, well, he is generous. He gives his son to meet our deepest need. And he shoulders the debt. He pays the price. 
He wears the penalty that first Easter on the cross. What is on view here in Act 1 is a king who is kind and patient and slow to anger and abounding in love. Here is a king who is able and willing to forgive. And so we see the extraordinary generosity and love of God. Because this man's been genuinely saved, hasn't he? Here is the largest gift in Jesus' message of the kingdom. Debt paid. Debt forgiven. And so servant number one, he dusts himself off and he flies away happy as, doesn't he? But of course, this is only act one in the drama. Is he still the king's servant at this point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely he is. So let's look at act number two, verse 28. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And we go, wow. I mean, what is owed is a few months' wages. Do you, do you know what proportion this is of his debt? This is apparently one six hundred thousandth of his debt. <laughs> That's some fraction, isn't it? You write that one down in your notes. One six hundred thousandth. It's chicken feed compared to what has been shown to him. I mean, if you thought the first servant's debt was staggering, and if you thought the king's forgiveness was incredible, and you should have, then how do you go with this reaction? This is bewildering. You would think a king's zillion-dollar forgiveness would surely produce some degree of patience in the one forgiven, right? You'd think that. In light of such immense forgiveness... A human being should be able to put up with plenty, surely, or, or at least a little bit, something. But it's a minuscule fraction of a debt compared to his. And there is not even a minuscule fraction of mercy being shown. It's just zero. This guy, is he paying it forward? Nah, not at all. Not not even a fraction. And so then we have to go as a reader, is this true of us? Is this what our hearts are like before a generous God? God loves us so much. He's forgiven us so much, such enormous love in Christ so that it produces in me the enormous capacity to bear with one another in love. Is that right? Are you nervous at this point? I'll tell you, as I prepared, I was nervous. Do you feel rebuked at this point? Because I certainly do. And I think that's right that we feel rebuked. God loves us abundantly. What, what does that produce in us? Jesus says in Luke 7, 47... He who is forgiven little, loves little. The less we appreciate and believe the king's forgiveness of our own sin, the less 
we will forgive. And surely we know our own guilt before God. Surely we know our debt is unendingly greater than any other person's guilt before us. That's part of the point here too. Whatever someone has done to offend us really pales in comparison to that which we have done to offend God. Jesus expects us to be unlimited in our forgiveness of others because God has been infinitely unlimited in his forgiveness to us. It's plain and simple. So verse 29, if you're Joe Average, and this guy's cranky pants, he's stinking mad, he's violent, he's tried to choke him. If you're Joe Average, what do you do? Well, again, all you've got is the ability to plead for mercy. Interestingly, did you know, notice his plea for mercy in verse 29 is near identical to the first servant's plea. So it has us ask if the first servant can actually hear his own words coming back to him. And then it gets you thinking, well, this is really opening this bloke up to the charge of hypocrisy now, if he can't hear his own words. But it gets worse. Can it get worse? Yeah, it does. Verse 30, for everybody. So the servant pleads, be patient with me. I'll pay it back. But... Servant number one refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. Can people be so inhuman? Uh, worse, can Christians who've experienced God's overwhelming forgiveness be so hard-hearted? And maybe the point of the story is, uh-huh, yeah, it happens. Yeah, it happens all too often. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. He taught his disciples to pray that prayer, not without good reason, didn't he? Jesus knows our propensity for selfishness, our reluctancy to sacrifice and to bear cost. He knows we're not so great at putting ourselves out because we can be selfish in prayer. Verse 31. We're into Act 3 now. Act 3, verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. Uh, here is, as you see the action of these other servants, I want you to see the function of the church in light of last week. It would be easy for them to look away at this point and spare themselves trouble. Uh, just as it would be sometimes easy for the church to look away. But love demands otherwise. Love and mercy and justice 
are things we're supposed to care about. And so these servants, they petition the king and as we pray as a church, isn't that what we do? We petition Jesus. And what is the action of the king? Verse 32, Then the master called the servant in, You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The debt is back. The debt, just like that, is reinstated and the king throws his sorry carcass into prison. Do you reckon servant number one, do you reckon it was, you know, he just didn't get it? He just didn't get it. And this is what Matthew's gospel does for us as believers. He's not afraid to get the cattle prod out on the church and give us a zap. He wants us to get it. He wants us to see that we're not saved for nothing. We're saved for something. Because the Lord's forgiveness is free. It is absolutely free. But it's a mistake to presume upon God's forgiveness and grace. That's a big mistake. Did the Lord forgive with conditions attached? No, he didn't. Not at all. That's not in the parable. And we know that's true of our King Jesus Christ. The Lord does not forgive with conditions attached. Did the Lord forgive with expected consequences? And the answer is absolutely. Love is not a condition of salvation, but love is a consequence. It is an outworking of salvation. Mercy is not a condition of salvation, but mercy is a consequence, an outworking of our salvation. Love, mercy, forgiveness, humility, they all show themselves in the community of the forgiven. Ephesians chapter 2 says, We are not saved by works, but our works are evidence that we're saved. James chapter 2 verse 17. And where mercy does not appear, then judgment happens. And that's the warning. There's something else going on in this parable as well. This parable teaches us that Christians live between two great settling of accounts. If we remember that breathtaking forgiveness on the one hand, how we mismanaged our debt, it's impossible to pay back, that's the first settling of accounts. Let's call that the cross. And we live after the cross, don't we? And the second account, we live before the possibility of that breathtaking condemnation in the last great accounting. The reckoning, verses 32 to 35, if you like. Judgment, 
Let's call that one the chair. And what is in between the two, between the cross and the chair? Well, that's, that's us now. In the first settling of accounts, we get off beautifully. We run to the cross. In the next settling of accounts, we have the chair, the seat of God's judgment. And according to this parable, our future depends on how we respond today to the generous forgiveness we received in the past. Clearly, the wrong response is violence and anger and pride and entitlement. And so because there's no limit to God's generosity to his undeserving people, we cannot in turn claim the right to withhold forgiveness from our fellow believers. We don't get to do that. The community of the forgiven, that's us, we must be a forgiving community. We've mentioned this before, forgiveness in the Bible is more like a handshake. It takes two, you can't shake hands by yourself, can you? doesn't make sense. And so repentance is a thing in this handshake, absolutely. Apologies are a thing in this handshake. Are there still consequences? Yeah, of course there are. And it is true that forgiveness, sadly, is not always possible. That's, that is a fact of life. But see again our part. We must be willing as God is willing. That's the point. We must be willing to forgive. We must be on the edge of our seats with our arms out, ready and willing. Because that is what God is like. So here is a question. If we understand the magnitude of God's mercy and forgiveness, if we get that generosity, what gets in the way of our forgiving our brothers and sisters? If we understand the magnitude of God's mercy and forgiveness, what gets in the way of our willingness to let things go or to keep short accounts or to do actually this harder work of forgiveness? Maybe you've got a brother or sister on your hit list at the moment, whoever they are, and whatever they've done, is it really bigger than the cross of Jesus? Is it really? The wages of sin is death, remember. Is it bigger than that? That's a big account to settle, isn't it? The wages of sin is death. Are we humbly grateful as Christians, because we know Jesus paid it. I mean, I could be, um, I mean, you know, is our gripe bigger than God's grace? Can it ever be? When we're unforgiving, we're playing God as Lord, Judge and Executioner. We're attempting to stand in the shoes of the king and that's a dangerous thing to do so we need to be careful we mustn't substitute the cross of love and forgiveness with anger and pride and bitterness and resentment or entitlement for this bloke was just a cheap debt it was nothing comparatively and he ended up condemned at the chair didn't he 
And so what should be said to those who won't forgive? Well, look, at a, look again at the cross. Look again at the cross and see God's love for you there in Jesus Christ. Look again at the warning of this parable and see again the generosity of God. See what he is like. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That is what the Lord is like. And our response? Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen.